Good morning. My name's Todd, and uh, I'm the pastor here. I almost said campus pastor. I'm the pastor here at Hilton Head Island Community Church, and um, we are glad that uh, you all are uh, worshiping with us this morning and uh, that you're here. And I don't know about you, I'm glad it's at least a little bit cooler in here uh, this morning, and uh, we're thankful for the weather and for some fans that we have around the, the room. So uh, anyway, glad that you're worshiping with us. We paused last week and kind of took a break from this series called Old School. And uh, we do this series every once in a while. It's a series on uh, Old Testament characters. And so uh, we, we like to do this every once in a while, especially at the beginning of school, and uh, go through some of the Old Testament characters. And uh, well, there's so much to learn from those biblical characters in the Old Testament. But last week we took a break. And we paused as we celebrated our four-year anniversary as a church campus, but we also launched out on our own, and it was our first day as Hilton Head Island Community Church, a brand new church, essentially. And uh, so um, we celebrated that, and we rejoiced, and we, we had a great time. We also remembered our 10-year uh, anniversary of 9-11. And so last week, we took this whole idea of suffering, and we talked about how on 9-11, there were so many people who suffered, and there was suffering going on. We talked about the fact that we as a church, and I, I kind of gave you five different dream points. There are things that I dream of when I think about us, kind of on the dawn of a new chapter uh, in the life of our congregation, um, what I dream of and what I believe God has us to be. And so I told you last week that we'll get to the what God is going to have us do as time goes on, but I think it was good, I think it's important for us early on to define who we are going to be as a church. And essentially what we did is we took Romans 8 uh, there at the end of Romans 8 verses 38 through 39 when uh, Paul is speaking to the church in Rome and he says that there is no power, there's nothing in all of the earth that can separate us from God's love. And I talked about essentially that we as a church ought to be the kind of church that points people to the love of Jesus Christ. That's who we ought to be. That's who uh, we ought to be and what we ought to be about. And so we talked about that love of Jesus. And we talked about how the world is hurting. There are so many people out there who are hurting. There are people who their lives are literally in rubble and in ruin. And there's so much pain. But... I got thinking about as we kind of are heading back into this series called Old School and the life of a man that we'll talk about in a moment by the name of Job, I got thinking about something. Some of you are probably suffering just like those that you're trying to reach. Some of you may have been in here last week and went, yeah, Todd, that's great. I love the fact that that's the kind of church we want to be, but what about me and what about my suffering? And so today we're going to speak specifically about the suffering of the righteous. And the righteous do suffer, don't they? I mean, people who do good, people who are good, people who live according to this word and according to God's word, we still suffer, don't we? We still have calamity in our lives. We still have things that go wrong. We still have people who victimize us. And so today, what I want to take a look at is the suffering of the righteous person. What about those who are suffering, who are righteous, who do all the right things? C.S. Lewis was asked once, why do the righteous suffer? And he answered this way. He said, why not? They're the only ones who can take it. 
And I think if I had been there that day, I would have respectfully said to C.S. Lewis, really? <laughs> I mean, come on, R- really? We can take it? That's true, but I think that we have to have some tools on how to take suffering and what to do with suffering. And so today, in our short time, we're not going to be able to answer fully the question, why do bad things happen to good people? But I believe that when we're considering suffering, and truly when the good do get it bad, and the good do get it bad sometimes, I think the real question to ask is how should we respond? What should we do when we suffer? Because suffering is going to happen. What should we do when we suffer? And so this morning, I'd like for us to consider that. I'd like for us to consider those who do all the right things. I mean, you're a great member of society. You're in good standing. You pay your taxes. You do all the right things. You pay your bills. You're good to your kids. You're good to your husbands and wives. You're a good church member. You come every Sunday. You even drop by the little box and drop a check in every once in a while. And you do all the right things, and calamity still happens. How should we respond in the midst of it? How should we, as James puts it, count it all joy when we face trials of many kinds? It is not easy. Let's face it. It's not easy. There's, there's an old expression that began in the 20th century or early 20th century that was used to describe Irish-American soldiers that were stationed at really good military outposts and really good military stations. I mean, these guys would get the best food, and they, 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 they had the best commanding officers. They had a lot of leave. They had a lot of time off. And the phrase was coined, they would have the life of what? Riley. The life of Riley. The life of Riley. Well, I did some research. You know what? There is no Riley. There is no Riley. There never was Riley. But it became a phrase that was kind of coined to describe someone who really had it good. And we even use it maybe today, uh, someone has the life of Riley. Back in the 40s and 50s, there was a movie made, The Life of Riley, in a television series that began um, way before my time, uh, called The Life of Riley. And so uh, anyway, and it became known, that phrase, that expression became known to mean something much more than it originally meant it became known to mean someone who had it all, had all the good stuff of life, really lived a very nice life, but, hang on, they didn't have to pay for anything. And it became known as someone who essentially lived a a great, cushy life, but somebody else was paying for it. And I think you could argue that the antithesis of the expression, the life of Riley, would be the life of Job. I mean, Job had everything happened to him that could happen that we could possibly imagine, but he did all the right things. He had literally, as we'll see in a moment, his life crash in on him, but he lived for God. He prayed the right prayers. He probably gave when he needed to give. He raised his family well, but still calamity knocked on his door one day. And so we're going to take a look at that and how we should respond. Before we do that, let's pray and ask God to bless our time this morning. Father God, thank you for your word. Um, God, I'm thankful for some of these different characters, these people who were just like us in the Old Testament many, many thousands of years ago. And God, I'm thankful that we can get a peek into their lives and that we can learn something about you and we can learn something about us and we can learn something about how we should respond to you. And God, I pray this morning for those who walked in here 
And they were energized by last week's message. They were excited about it. Yeah, let's go reach the lost. Let's, peep, let's reach people whose lives are crashing in on them. And let's share the love of Jesus with them. But God, I pray for that man or woman or child or student who walked in here today. And they want to do that. But boy, their life seems to have crashed in on them. And God, they're doing all the right things. And I pray for your grace and your mercy and your love to show up. But God, I also pray that today that we can learn how to respond in a better way than maybe we are now to life crisis. God, help us to learn something from Job. God, may you speak through your word. May your Holy Spirit lead us into all wisdom and all knowledge and understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to the book of Job and the book of Job is right before Psalms, right after Esther, which we're going to take a look at next week, uh, Life of Queen Esther. And uh, if you don't have your Bibles, that's no problem. We've got the words on the screen this morning. And we're going to be walking through this whole book this morning, kind of uh, taking a bookend look at the life of Job. We're going to look at the front of it, and we're going to look at the end of it, and we're going to learn some things of how we should respond during times of suffering. Job chapter 1, and we're going to be, first of all, in verses 1 through 4 here. In the land of Uz, there lived a man. By the way, it's not the land of Oz, okay? In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God, and that word feared is a good thing, by the way, and he shunned evil. Verse 2, he had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. And he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man in the East. Now, I want you to catch that. We're going to come back to that. He was the greatest man among all of the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. Now, most scholars tell us that this story took place right about in the middle of the Old Testament. So if you were to take the time from Genesis through the time right before Jesus Christ, the Old Testament time, Job probably happened right about in the middle there. Now, there are some liberal theologians that would tell you that Job is a parable that it's a false story, that it's a fake story. But that's not true. The truth of the matter is, is that this man, unlike the life of Riley, Job was actually a person. Job was a real guy. He was a real person. He actually lived and breathed, and he wrestled with God and struggled with kids, and he was a farmer, and so he had the burden of running his own business and running his house, household. And the Bible says that he was the greatest man of all of the people of the East. This is interesting because the Bible speaks of two things that he was great. First of all, he talks about material wealth. Now, all the way back in this day, in this agriculturally driven society, people were not measured in the amount of stock they had or money they had in the bank or maybe real estate or maybe even in gold. And some of you are like, yeah, wealth isn't measured that way today either, Todd, uh, anymore. But he was measured in terms, and people were measured in terms of how much they had in terms of livestock. I mean, if you wanted to keep up with the Joneses back in this day and age, you would compare how many donkeys you had and how many cows you had and how much ox you had. This was how people judged the greatness of someone in terms of material wealth. And that's important because the Bible mentions it. 
But you know, it's not the most important thing. The most important thing that the Bible speaks of here is the fact that this was a great man in terms of who he was as a person. He was a man that God says that he's pleased with. A man who's upright, who's righteous, who fears the Lord and shuns evil. Let's take a look. Keep on reading. Verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Verse 7. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Okay. Going, roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it when you're Satan is not just a joyride. This is something that he's been doing that he's causing evil. He's looking for evil, and we get the impression that he's looking for humans to do evil with or to do evil upon. Verse 8, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless. He's upright. He's one who fears God and shuns evil. Now, this is God speaking to Satan about Job. And he's given a good word about Job, isn't he? I mean, if you're Job, you're probably like, all right, God is talking good about me. And then you're like, wait a minute, God's talking to Satan good about me. This is not going to go too well. This is not going to go well. And I wonder if Job, if he had known what God was saying on his behalf, if he would have said, God, please, enough is enough. I mean, isn't there someone else that you can talk that good about to Satan? Because I know what's coming. I know what's next. It's interesting. We, we want to be highly regar regarded by God. We, we want him to say those types of things to us. But sometimes we don't realize the challenges and the trials that come along with that. Job realized that. And nowhere in all of Scripture is there any indication that he ever recoiled from God doing his worst and allowing Satan to do his worst. Take a look and see what happens. Verse 12, the Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself, don't lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the death, to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Now, take a look at the ne very next verse, verse 16. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire from, of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. Catch this, verse 17. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans have formed three raiding parties and they swept down on your camels and they carried them off. They put your servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And you're thinking, man, poor old Job. I mean, all this is happening. It's happening in a matter of moments. What's going on? We're not done yet. Look at verse 18. While he was yet speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and your daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they, were, they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Can you imagine what Job was going through at this time? 
Now, if we believe the Bible to be true and we believe this to be an actual story and not a parable, we have to believe that these things happened literally in a matter of moments. That while one servant was yet speaking, another one came on, came in to deliver bad news. These calamities happened in Job's life one right after another. And take a look at verse 20. At this, Job got up, he tore off his robe, he shaved his head, which was a sign of mourning. Then he fell to the ground in what? Worship. He tore off his robe, he shaved his head, and in response that, to all that happened, to all that Satan did, to all that God allowed to happen to Job, he worshiped. I don't know about you, but if all of those things had happened to me like that, I wouldn't have been worshiping. I probably would have been cursing. Verse 21, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Here calamity has struck Job's household, and literally he worships as a response to all of the suffering going on. Literally, he cries out and he praises God's name in spite of all the suffering that's gone on. And verse 22 sums it up. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with any wrongdoing. God has so much faith in Job that he allows Satan to do his worst. There's something in here that we can learn, and there's a lot that we can learn from this passage, and we'll keep on reading in a moment. But I want you to see something. That God said, you can do whatever you want to, but on Job, don't lay a finger. There's something about the provision of God that we can learn in that. And you might be saying, yeah, but in my circumstance, I don't think that God ever said, but Satan. Leave him or her alone, Satan. But we don't know what happened. We don't know what transpired. We don't know what we don't know. And God is a God that even in the midst of our calamity, even in the midst of our crisis, is a protector, and he provides for us. Let's keep reading. Look at chapter 2. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came up with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan said to the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. You're like, Todd, you're reading the wrong passage. It's from chapter 1. No, it's the second chapter the same exact thing, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. So one chapter starts with one day, these things happen to Job. And the very next chapter says, on another day, these things happen to Job. Don't tell me that crisis doesn't come one right after another. Don't tell me that when it rains, it doesn't pour. It does. The good sometimes get it bad. Job got it bad in this case. When I, I've heard this story since I was a kid growing up in church, and many of you have too. But I remember when I heard it as a young adult, I think it was in eighth or ninth grade, and I began thinking about this, and I began thinking about the fact of, man, I would love to be a guy who was known like Job was, that I would be a person that God would say, he's upright, have you considered him? And I don't know about you, but as life goes on, my skepticism 
about being that person of God starts to increase. And I wonder, man, do I really want to be like Job? Do I want to be that person that God says, this is my servant, and he's a faithful servant? And I go, do I want to be like Job, really? Because there's a huge cost sometimes when we choose to follow God the way that he wants to. We often buy into the lie that once we become Christ followers, once we follow God, once we begin doing the right thing, we buy into the lie that everything's going to be fine in our lives. And that's not necessarily the case. The world is still the world, and we aren't in control. And sometimes things go bad, even for those of you who do good. Let's keep reading. Verse 4, skin for skin, Satan replied, a man will give all that he has for his own life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. Once again, we see God's provision in this situation. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him in verse 9, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Great spousal support there, huh? Anyway, verse 10. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Wow. What amazing perspective. Job, the book goes on to describe how when his friends arrive on the scene, and we'll talk about his friends in a moment, that they didn't even recognize him, that they didn't even know who he was other than the fact that he was mourning. But take a look at verse 10, the end of verse 10. In all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. He worshiped God, he remained faithful, and he didn't sin in what he said. Now, as often happens when we go through crisis, Job had a couple friends that showed up on the scene. There was Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophor the Namathite, and I would say that Job needs some new friends just because of their names. Anyway, the first thing that, that happens is his friends show up on the scene, and they try to offer peace. They try to offer comfort. They, they, they try to give him some words, some answer. They, they try to help him out but to no avail. All they do is stir it up. They make it worse. And from chapters 3 through 37, we see this amazing discourse between these friends of Job and Job. And what they're doing is they're comforting him, but they're also saying, oh, Job, man, there must be some reason that these calamities happened. There must be some kind of sin in your life. You must have done something to provoke God's anger that he would allow all these things to happen to you. You must have something to do with this, Job. You must have something to do with this. And so Job spends all of this time defending himself, coming up with all of these reasons why he should not have been put through what he he was put through. He, He literally gives a laundry list of all of these things but I did this, but I did this. This should have been pleasing to God. I shouldn't be the one to go through this. And all of a sudden, Job takes a big step, not towards sin. The Bible says in all this, he didn't sin. But he takes a big step towards pride 
in his defense, he becomes extraordinarily self-righteous. And we do that when we're put in a defensive position, don't we? It's human nature to take a step towards self-righteousness. I do it. When I'm put in a position to defend myself, I begin to list all of those things that I'm good at or that I do. It happened yesterday at our house. We're at the, at the breakfast table, not with me this time, but with Sean. We're at the breakfast table, and we'd had breakfast, and we had a little devotional like we do sometimes on Saturdays. And uh, we asked the kids, this devotional asked the kids, what is one thing that you're not good at that you need God's help with? And so Sydney, our seven-year-old, she answered first, and she had a great answer. It was really great. And then she didn't even stop speaking, and she started answering for Sean, the four-year-old. What are the things that he's not good at? And so she began to answer. And he quickly spoke, and he said, but I'm good at, and he started listing all the things. At four years old, he became self-righteous in his own little mind. I'm good at the Wii. I'm good at soccer. I'm good at being first. I'm good at so on and so forth. Sound familiar, ladies? <laughs> we men are really good at self-righteousness, aren't we? But it's something that we do when we are put on the defensive. We begin to list all of those good things, those things that we're good at. And that's exactly what Job did with God. He began to list all of these things. And he began to say to God and his friends that have weird names, he began to say, I shouldn't be the one that's been put through this. This calamity should be for someone else, surely. And he took a big step in his self-righteous attitude towards being prideful and thinking that he could control his situation. But things didn't get any better. In fact, it got worse. He became more despondent. He became more depressed. And all of a sudden, to put a cherry on the top of his suffering, a storm gathered. Literally, the storm clouds gathered. And in the midst of the storm, in the midst of when things are just absolutely as dark as can be, God breaks the silence in chapter 38. And God shows up on the scene. And he speaks with Job, largely without Job interrupting, for a couple chapters. And his challenge to Job is simply this. I am God and you are not. And sometimes you can't figure things out. I'm God, you're not. And sometimes you can't figure things out. Nice response from God, it seems, doesn't it? I mean, that's what you've got, God. But you know, God is bigger than us. He is more sovereign than us, and he does know better than us. And he kept Job from falling into the temptation of pride. And we don't know the end of what that story might have been for Job. That may have ended in his own personal death. And so God shows up on the scene. He questions and challenges Job. And Job begins, he begins to think through, how should I really be responding? Rabbi Harold Kushner said this about suffering. In the final analysis, the question of why bad things happen to people transmutes itself into some very different questions, no longer asking why something happened, but asking how will we respond? What do we intend to do now that it happened? So I want to answer those questions as we look at the end of, Job's, uh, end of J the story of Job. How should we respond when we suffer? First, we've got to reverse our attitude. When faced with our frailty, we should remain pliable enough to allow our attitude to change. You know, in the face of suffering, in the face of calamity, it doesn't matter whether you're righteous or evil, it doesn't matter. 
uh, it's natural, it's human, it's, it's the part of who we are to have a poor attitude about what's going on around us. That's just a natural reaction to suffering. And suffering will lead us down that path. But if we can't get a hold of it, it'll lead us down a much darker path. Take a look at how Job, who is questioning God, who is defending himself, by the way, for all of these chapters from chapter 3 through 38, he wasn't defending God. Look how he begins to soften in Job 40, verses 2 through 5, after he's had a uh, chance to respond to God. Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, now I will say no more. And so Job gets to the point that God shows up on the scene and he challenges Job and you can see his attitude begin to soften about his circumstances. You see, here's how this normally goes. Tragedy strikes and we become concerned about our welfare. Concern grows to worry. Worry grows to being consumed about our circumstances. And that leads to an obsession about what's going on. And that leads to an obsession about how to resolve it. And then we become depressed about it. And then anger sets in. And all of a sudden, we're on a slippery slope. Or sometimes questioning why what's going on is going on can lead us to be extremely self-righteous. And that can lead to depression and anger and bitterness, ultimately, that can keep us from having a good relationship with God. That's where Job found himself. He had become so obsessed with his suffering, so obsessed with his own goodness, that he was on the verge of ruining his good standing with God. What's the second thing that we can learn from Job's response? Secondly, we've got to realize God's sovereignty realize God's sovereignty. That word sovereignty is a word that literally means that God is in control and we are not. And that's essentially how God challenged Job. You can try to figure this out, but in doing so, you become prideful and you become almost like a God in yourself, small g. You see, when we try to, to resolve uh, and, and make a, a connection with our, our own calamity and our own suffering, we try to figure it out to the point that it becomes a, an obsession, we almost become, or we almost think that we become like we're gods and that we have some say-so in what's going on in our lives. All we have say-so in is our response to what happens in our lives. God, uh, the second thing that we can do is, is realize that God is sovereign. I love this. God asked Job in Job 40, verse 7, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. And then Job responds all the way in verse 42, 1 through 3. Listen to Job's response and listen to how he realized God's sovereignty finally. I know that you can do all things, he says. No plans of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. You see that softening there even more so in Job's life? Things too wonderful for me to know. This was a man that just a few chapters earlier, he was defending his righteousness. He was full of self-righteousness and on the verge of being prideful. And he finally comes to the place that he realizes, you know what? As righteous and as good as I am, as, 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 as good standing as I have with you, God, things are going to happen. And you are God, and I'm not. 
there's a lesson that we can learn in that, and that is, is that good human behavior does not always breed good life circumstance. God is the one who is in control. God is the one who can guide and direct and protect and take care of you. And once we get to that point in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of our calamity, then God can begin to work on us. And the third way that we should respond as a result of how Job responded is that we should renounce our own self-righteousness. When we identify our own pride, it's at that point that God can bring about restoration in our lives. Now, does that mean that God always will bring restoration in our lives? Not necessarily. Does it always mean that he's going to bring it the way we want it? (laughs) How we want it? On our terms? Not necessarily. But when we renounce our own self-righteousness, it's at that point that God can restore us back to where we were before. Look at Job 42, verse 4 through 6. You said, Job is saying to God, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. Verse 5, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Now, is Job saying that he literally despises himself? No. But he is essentially saying, you are God and I'm not, and I'm going to get rid of my self-righteousness because it doesn't really matter now. And at that point, God began to restore Job. And if you go on to read, you find out that the end of the story is truly amazing. You see, at the end of the story, God restores Job. This was probably in the middle of his life when all this calamity happened. The Bible says that Job went on to have the same amount of children that he had before. The Bible says that God so restored Job that he went on, he went on to have double the wealth that he had before. You see, God restored Job, but he only did it. I want you to catch this. He only did it when he got rid of his self-righteousness, when he resigned to his self-righteousness and said, I can't do it anymore. I'm not good enough to control my circumstances, and I'm not good enough to understand all that happened. We don't always like the way our life course takes sometimes, do we? It's not always easy. In fact, many times it's difficult. But you know what? There's always an end. And if we can get to the place where we can begin to change our attitude and realize that God's in control and resign our self-righteousness, God can restore us. He can bring us back to a place that we were at before. Somerset Mongam, the English writer, once wrote a story about a janitor at St. Peter's Church in London. One day, there was a young vicar, and he discovered that this janitor was illiterate, and he fired him. Jobless, this man invested his meager savings into a tiny tobacco shop. When he prospered, he bought another, and then another, and then another. And all of a sudden, his meager savings ended up in a chain of tobacco stores back uh, centuries ago that was worth several hundred thousands of dollars in today's day and age. Well, one day, that man's banker said, you've done well for an illiterate, but where would you be if you could read or write? Well, the man replied, I'd be a janitor at St. Peter's Church in Neville Square. We don't realize the course our life is going to take, but if we can put our faith and trust 
in God, the creator of heavens and earth, if we can begin to soften in our attitude about our circumstances and about our crisis, and if we can give up control to him, who is in control anyway, and if we can get rid of our self-righteousness, there's an end that's much better than maybe the beginning or the midpoint of our lives. You may be in here today and you're like, man, Todd, I, I, I've, I've got to have some resolution. I've got to have some understanding of what God's doing. Resign yourself to his control in your life. And I think you'll see that things may not get any better, but they may make more sense. And ask him for his grace and his love and his mercy to cover your life and lead you in a way that's pleasing to him. Let's pray this morning. God, I thank you for the life of Job. It's an encouragement to those of us who are going through calamity, who are going through crisis. And God, there may be a thousand different responses just represented in this one room to crisis. And God, there are good ways to respond and there are bad ways to respond. And your servant Job was on the verge of good and bad all through Job, but he never sinned. And God, may we be a people who when crisis hits our door, when it knocks on our door, when it rings our doorbell, God, I pray that we're a people who are honoring and glorifying to you. And God, while we may want to say in one moment, I want to be like Job, and in the next moment we say, boy, I don't want any part of that. I pray, God, that we would just be people who honor and glorify you and that we're people that you're pleased with. And God, I pray that you would be pleased with our responses. God, I pray that you would help us to soften ourselves by reversing our attitude. God, I pray that you would help us to realize that we have to uh, relinquish our control and realize that you're in control. And finally, God, I pray that you would help us to realize that we have to absolutely get rid of anything that's self-righteous in our lives. God, that a list of good things that we've done in our lives isn't going to help us in this present crisis that we're going through. The only one who can help us is you because your grace and your mercy and your peace and your love is absolutely enough to get us through. God, I pray that we would seek you out and that we would find you as your word says. And God, I pray if there's anyone in here who doesn't know you as their Savior, God, I pray that today would be their day, that a spark goes off, that something happens. God, that you would help lead them to people and things in their lives that point them to you and your love. God, may your grace and mercy cover us. And God, at the end of the day, may we be like Job and may we be people who look at you in the midst of crisis and say, you are the one who's blessed, and we bless your name as a result of even the bad things that happen to us. God, give us the strength to have that kind of attitude. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.